Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Dave H., and again, I'm um, really, it's amazing to be here today, um, to be here sober with you you folks. Um, as I said earlier, I've been sexually sober since August 1st, 1985. Um, and as one of the people that I first heard this say this in Tennessee, I'm frequently but never sufficiently grateful. Um, I've, I've been on a journey and I'm really touched because I see somebody is, was at one of my first meetings here in Nashville, Lee T. Good to see you, Lee. Um, and I started an essay in Rochester, New York, and there's somebody on the call from Rochester, New York, uh, back in August of 1985. So um, it's, it's great to have all those touch points and uh, go Rochester. Um, so um, how did I get here? And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about you, Paul, um, at, at your first SA meeting. So we're, we're, we're glad that you're here, that you're here and, and hope that something that we say here today will help you. Um, you know, I, uh, um, I'm just a run of the mill sexaholic. Um, for me, you know, my acting out behaviors, uh, were, uh, compulsive masturbation, use of pornography. Um, as I got older, promiscuity. Um, the big one for me was dependency relationships. Um, and, uh, but voyeurism, sexualizing, objectifying, uh, I'm triggered by visual stimulus, um, uh, taste, smell, sounds, anything can trigger my addiction. And, um, and, you know, I was exposed to pornography when I was eight years old uh, by a neighbor kid and uh, knew immediately that, you know, this was something that was um, both forbidden, but also extremely enticing to me. And, um, and I knew immediately that I would not tell my parents, you know, what I had seen and I wanted to see more. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the boy that introduced me to this um, technically did not lay a hand on me, but, I, you know, he knew better. Uh, I didn't. And, uh, um, but that set um, up a desire in me to see more. And uh, uh, soon um, I was with other kids more my age in the neighborhood and and um, there was this was in the early 1960s um, in Ohio, where I grew up, and there was a lot of construction going on. And so there were a lot of um, construction workers that were leaving magazines uh, at the con- construction site. And uh, soon me and my friends had a had a pretty good collection. 
And, uh, and so we had a fort out in the woods and we found something waterproof to keep our stash safe. And um, we would look at them together. Um, but soon I was, I was going up to the fort by myself to, uh, to look at the pornography. And, and, um, and, you know, once I learned how to masturbate, you know, that just took it to an, an, another level. You know, that the sensation was just amazing to me. Um, and so that's how it started. Um, it progressed uh, over time. Um, you know, as I got older, uh, you know, my, my thinking was that um, I needed to have a relationship or I needed to have physical contact with a woman. And, you know, I'm in my early teens by then. And, uh, um, but I was always the youngest, always the smallest. Um, you know, I, I had no dates in high school. So the chance of that happening, um, were, were pretty slim. Um, and you know, I need to mention what was going on at my home at the time. Um, you know, we, we were the classic look good family. Um, my, um, we had a nice house. Both of my parents worked. Um, they had good jobs. We went to church every Sunday. Um, but inside the four walls of that house, um, it was very unstable. My, my dad was, was a, um, um, bipolar, uh, manic depressive. And, uh, and he could be when he was, when he was manic, he could be either very, fun to be around or very scary to be around because he got very violent and angry. Um, you know, in retrospect, I, you know, I believe now that he was, um, he was an alcoholic. He was probably a sexaholic. He was addicted to nicotine and food. And, um, and yeah, I know now that, you know, he was trying to get by in life in, in ways that, you know, that he had discovered that helped him. But, it made our family life very chaotic. And so um, coming home was not an easy thing to do. And, and being at the fort with the pornography was much more appealing to me. And that's how I, that's how I, I survived my early years. Um, fast forward, you know, I didn't start really actively dating until I was in college. And, and then it was all about, um, progressing physically as, as quickly and as far as I could, as fast as I could. Um, I, I'm in college in the earth, you know, I went to college in 1970 and, um, and that's, you know, all my friends that seemed what they were doing. And, uh, um, so I didn't see anything wrong. You know, there was plenty of pornography to go around. Uh, the, the fraternities were showing, you know, X-rated movies at, at gatherings. Um, everybody was trying to score, you know, with women. And um, so my life didn't seem anything out of the ordinary. And I thought it was just, you know, that I was just a very sexual person. And, uh, and so when I finally did um, become sexual with a woman, you know, I thought it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, this was my solution. And, um, and I just assumed that I, you know, I would get married and, 
and I would have sex as frequently as I, uh, as I, I liked and, um, that everything would be good. And I, you know, I, I stopped going to church pretty much when I went to college. And so I, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, I basically took the seventies off from church and, um, by the end of the, the seventies, I had been transferred to Rochester, New York and, uh, for a job. And, uh, I, I met the woman who would become my wife and, uh, um, she was, she was perfect. Um, you know, we didn't have sex for the first five months that we were dating. You know, I believe now that it was because she was actually involved with somebody else. But, uh, for me, that, that was okay because, you know, I had this sense that all the good ones were taken and, uh, um, so I would just have to be persistent, uh, which I did. And, and, uh, uh, when we finally did connect physically, you know, I thought it was great. Uh, you know, I found my soulmate and, uh, and, you know, we got married in 1980 and, uh, you know, I had a great career going. We had a beautiful home. We had two new cars. Um, I was climbing the ladder. And I thought I had everything I needed. And, and, uh, but after a year, you know, in fact, before we got married, I threw out my stash of magazines, uh, because I wasn't going to need them anymore. And, um, really went into that marriage thinking, you know, this was it. This is going to be my lifelong partner and, and everything would be, would be fine. Um, so, uh, um, about a year or two into marriage, um, you know, we're starting to have some disagreements and, and, uh, I'm realizing there's more to relationships than what I thought there were. And, uh, um, um, the, uh, sex became less frequent and seemed to be, you know, more of a power struggle between she and I. And, uh, I, I began to, tried to walk on eggshells around her like I learned around my father and uh, to try to manipulate her to be sexual with me. And, um, and when we'd have arguments, you know, I, I didn't know how to argue because I'd never seen it done in my home. Um, you know, if my mother tried to argue with my dad, he, he would blow up and he would threaten us. And, and so I didn't learn how to have disagreements and, and I felt very frustrated in that. And uh, I can remember after having an argument with my wife on the way to work, pounding on the steering wheel saying, boy, I'm really happy now. You know, um, a lot of self-pity. And it was about that time that a friend of mine had a had one of those white light spiritual conversions. And uh, um, he called me very excited and uh, told me about his re- religious conversion. And um, there was something different about him. Um, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was definitely something different. And, you know, I believe that, that, that he was a sex addict. Um, you know, he had a stash. Um, I knew that he was unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he talked to me about that. And, uh, so this was a big change and it got my attention and, and, um, um, you know, I, I, I call it the first 
step in my spiritual awakening was that, uh, you know, there, there, even though I had everything I thought I needed to be happy, something was still missing. And, um, and so I went back to church and, uh, I went back to the church of my childhood. My, I was a Protestant. My wife was a Roman Catholic. Uh, so she did not practice. Um, as, as I said, I hadn't been to church except for um, important events uh, for over 10 years. Uh, but I started going back to church. And, and um, I'd only been back a couple of months when I, when I discovered that uh, um, I w- I became aware of my behavior, um, particularly as a, as a, um, connected with uh, sexualizing women. Here I was married. Um, you know, I I felt that I needed to be true to my spouse, and yet um, I flirted with women at work. Um, I I. I sexualized them. I objectified them. I rank ordered them. Should my wife die today, you know, here's who I would go after next. And, um, and I started feeling guilty about that. And, um, and I remember one, one night, uh, you know, I lived in Rochester, New York. It was wintertime. Uh, one of the winter sports is bowling because it's indoors. And, um, I remember uh, the men's league bowled right next to the ladies' league, and I remembered I looked forward to Thursday nights because there were a lot of attractive women that bowled, and I would sexualize them while they bowled. And uh, that night at the bowling alley, I I tried not to look, and I had a really difficult time, and I felt so that made me feel even more guilty. So I was becoming aware that. Uh, you know, that I was doing something that that maybe wasn't in line with um, my newfound faith. Um, I, the, the next awareness that I had was that, uh, you know, I'd thrown my stash away, but, you know, I found ways to get around that, around my spouse. And, uh, you know, we had cable TV, but we had canceled our our subscription. But I found out that uh, there were times that I could turn on the cable and when I knew there were programs with nudity and there would be these squiggly lines, but sometimes you could get a clear picture. And I would get up in the middle of the night uh, to see if I could get lucky and, and get a picture that I could see. And, um, you know, I, you know, I never stopped masturbating. Um, I always kept it secret from her, uh, but that was my go-to. That was my crutch. And, um, Somewhere along the line, I, I, I began to have this awareness that no matter what I did to intensify the experience and make it more exciting than the last one, that when it was over, I felt empty. And, um, you know, I, I came to the conclusion, you know, this doesn't work. And so now, you know, I've got this awareness that I'm doing something I'm not happy that I'm doing. And not only that, but it doesn't work. And, um, and that went on for a period of time until, uh, in February of 1984, I turned on the TV and, um, I had quit my job with a company that had 
sent me through college and where I had a great career. And um, I was making a career change. And I turned on the TV this one morning, you know, primarily to get a hit because there was a talk show on and they used to have some very um, lively uh, sexual kinds of programming. And I turned it on and there was this gentleman sitting behind a uh, screen so that you couldn't see who he was. And he was describing his behavior. And his, he was describing the fact that he had a stash of pornography. He was married. The, uh, that he, when his wife wasn't around, he would take this, this uh, pornography out and he would masturbate to it. And, um, you know, the, 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 the live audience was primarily female. And there was a lot of giggling going on about all this. But um, I identified immediately. And I sat down. And I watched that program, and uh, the topic that day was sexual addiction. And the uh, the reason it was the topic is because the author um, had written a book on that topic. And uh, I knew immediately. Um, so I, at that point in time, I'd been practicing my addiction, addiction for maybe 25 years. Uh, I knew immediately that that was me, that I was addicted. And I, I'd never, that thought had never entered my mind. Um, you know, the problem was uh, that day, um, I didn't hear a solution. And, um, and so I, you know, I knew immediately again, I'm not going to tell my wife about this, that I'm an, a sex addict, uh, but what am I going to do? And uh, so I went on this the, the topic of the book back then was called sexual addiction. And uh, I even called a bookstore and, and disguised my voice saying, ask them if they had the book sexual addiction. <laughs> Think, yeah, this was before, this was before call, you know, caller ID or anything else. This is 1984. Right. Um, but I was frightened that somebody would recognize my voice somehow. Um, but they didn't have the book. Uh, I went to the library. Uh, I found a book on addiction. And um, um, and I seemed to connect with that. That made sense to me. And uh, But I really didn't know what to do. And, and I knew I'd read enough about addiction that I needed to stop. Uh, but I didn't know how. And um, the, the concept of asking God into that didn't occur to me at the time. And uh, so I spent the next roughly 18 months trying to figure out how to stop. And the best I could do is maybe a week or two. Um, but I would always, I would always relapse. Um, either I was stressed or I was celebrating, whatever. Uh, that's how I always use that drug. And, and um, it wasn't until my, uh, we started having some marital issues. We sought some counseling. Never occurred to me to talk about my addiction and how that might affect my marriage. And, uh, but when my wife decided to move out, I went into crisis and I, I was, I was so debilitated. I could not work. And I, um, my doctor gave me some time off work to, I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was totally dependent on this, on this woman.
And um, towards the end of our counseling sec- session, as she had moved out of the house, um, I finally uh, worked up the courage and, and said, you know, I don't think this had anything to do with the breakup of my marriage, but I believe I'm a sex addict. Can you help me? And um, the psychiatrist reached into his his uh, his desk drawer. He looked at something, scribbled down an address. It said SA PO Box 300, Simi Valley, California. And um, I didn't know what SA stood for. I didn't didn't think to ask the question at the time. And uh, uh, but I wrote a letter, and I said, uh, you know, I think I have a problem. And can you help me? And uh, about a week later, I got I got a pamphlet in the mail and uh, a letter from uh, our the secretary in the office at that time. And and uh, I read the problem and I read the solution and I started crying. I said, you know, this is me. You know, this is me. Um, you know, it, it mentioned God as a solution. And, uh, um, you know, as I said, I, it had never occurred to me, even though I was back in church, I, I was coming to believe that God loved me just the way I was. Uh, but it had never occurred to me that I could invoke God to try to help me with this problem. And, uh, when I saw that, I, I melted and, uh, it took me, that was in May of 1985, um, I got contacted maybe a month, month and a half later uh, by somebody in Rochester, uh, the the chairperson at that time. And, uh, you know, we were in the process of selling, selling the house that I, that we had bought together. She had already moved out. We were trying to sell the house. I had been off work for six weeks. I was trying to get back to work. Um, But this, this gentleman reached out to me and, and introduced himself, told me where the meeting was. And, um, that was in late July. We, I was moving out on July 31st and, um, I told him I would, they had one meeting a week on Wednesday evening and I said, I'll, I'll be there. Um, so the last time I acted out was, um, July 31st, 1985. And it was because I didn't know anything else to do. I was moving out of my dream house. Um, my job was very rocky. Uh, it would turn out that I'd only have it another couple of months. Um, my wife had moved out and wouldn't tell me where she lived. We didn't have cell phones there. So the only way I could be in contact with her was at her office. And I was, I felt defeated. And, uh, the only thing I knew to do was to masturbate. And, uh, but I felt like I probably should go to my first meeting maybe at least a week sober. And um, so I white knuckled it uh, to that first meeting in um, uh, the summer of 1985. And when I got there, uh, there were three other men. Uh, we, we met in a mental institution on the south side of Rochester. All the uh, clients uh, were outside in their white gowns smoking cigarettes. And you kind of had to walk 
uh, run the gauntlet to get in the in, into the facility to have our meeting. I, I said, what an appropriate place to have a sexaholics meeting, right, as a mental institution. And uh, we sat down, and uh, Vince, the, the, the man who invited me, uh, introduced himself and said he had been sexually sober for five months. And I about fell off my chair. I, I, I couldn't believe that anybody could be sober for five months. And uh, um, the, other men, the other men shared, and I, w- I think I came in second place with one week. Uh, there was a guy named Dave G who was six days. Uh, and I think Dave is still coming around. Um, and, uh, you know, I heard things that night that I had never heard before that people did. Uh, but what I heard, what I heard, uh, was a common problem that we were all doing things that we didn't want to do. And, and we needed each other to, 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 um, to find the solution. Um, so from there, uh, you know, I ended up losing my job. I had to, um, I, I left Rochester, moved to Detroit, uh, Detroit, had no SA meetings at the time. Uh, they had another S fellowship or two other fel- S fellowships that I attended for a year or so. And, uh, and I finally, in talking with our founder, um, uh, I said, you know, this, is, these, this other fellowship is not working for me. I need people that are, uh, need a sobriety definition and are working towards sobriety. And um, he invited me to the conference in uh, St. Louis in November of 1986. And um, I went. And um, I knew at that time that I was going to be moving to Nashville. And uh, and some of the first people I met there um, was, a, was a guy who had become my sponsor named Harvey. And uh, one minute, two minutes. Okay. And uh, I met another guy named Judson, and uh, and uh, you know he and I have been in contact now for over thirty years, and uh, it went from there. So, um, you know what worked for me early on. Uh, once I I it occurred to me that I could have a con a contact with a higher power or a power outside of myself, and you know for those who struggle with the concept of God or a higher power. Um, for me, the, the simple question what, or the simple realization was that I'm not that. Um, I am powerless over lust in all of its forms and all the ways that it triggers me. And the minute I learned how to, uh, when I had that, had a thought, um, when I was going through withdrawal, like our friend Paul was describing earlier, um, all I had to do was, uh, Ask God to take it away, and um, and that happened. And sometimes it would happen over and over and over. And usually, you know, then I would have to pick up the phone and make a phone call. But I'm talking pre-cell phone days, and 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 people that I couldn't call at home because, in some cases, their spouses didn't know about. So, I, you know, um, prayer turned out to be my salvation early on, and. Uh, so that's how it's worked for me. Uh, to make a long story short, I was single and sober for 11 years. Um, 
I met my my spouse and and started dating about five years into recovery, and got married, uh, remarried uh, two days after my 11th sobriety birthday, and I've now been married for over 24 years. I have two children, uh, 20 and 21, that I I would not have had had I not found this program. Uh, it's been a miracle. Um, and, uh, and it, but it doesn't go away. <laughs> it has never gone away. Uh, it does keep getting better. So um, um, I guess that's probably a good place to stop it right there. And um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Luke. And uh, thank you uh, for a wonderful share. And uh, great to see you, Paul, on the meeting as well. Uh, welcome to SA. And um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I'm sober today. I've been sober for a few years. And when I came in, I thought it would never happen. So uh, keep do keep coming back and keep working those steps. And uh, thank you so much for, th- for that share. I really, really appreciated it. And I really, really, really connected when you shared about changing your behavior to manipulate uh, your wife, and especially when it came to uh, sexual intimacy or, you know, uh, sort of having sex with your wife. Because for me, one of the areas of the biggest struggle for me in sobriety has been uh, looking at uncovering surrendering lust uh, in the marriage. Uh, and that's been especially as we've gone through the process of, um, I guess, healing and then also having children and having young children around, uh, all this kind of stuff. So I just wanted to ask a question, uh, which is, so you got married 11 years into sobriety, I think you said. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how, or whether you encountered sort of, you know, lust in the marriage or um, how you dealt with uh, lust recovery in marriage? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Fr- Frederico. Um, you know, um, that's a great question. Um, I'd like to say it never happened. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, you know, one of the things that I that I tell people when I, you know, I I've I've talked a lot about what it was like dating, you know, in sobriety and and uh, and what I what I what I say is that uh, two things um, that uh, being sober for eleven years and remarrying, uh, I feel like I got my virginity back um, because what I realized. Um, in in having an, an emotional in, uh, relationship with my spouse first before we had a physical one, that all my previous encounters with women were really masturbation, and it was it was all about me and nothing about them. And um, so you know when when my my wife and I my new wife were and I were first sexual. Um, all, all the fantasy and all that stuff kind of went out the window and, I, you know, we were focused on each other and, and that's, that's when it struck me that all my previous experiences, you know, were, were in my head and not with the person that I was with. Um, yeah, you know, it's particularly when the kids were small, um, and, you know, my, my two sons are 16 months apart and, uh, I had my first child when I was 47. So, um, um, I felt kind of overwhelmed early on and, uh, uh, with that whole parenting thing and, and, 
not getting the attention that I was used to from my spouse. And so, you know, I, I, I knew there were times that I wanted something that probably wasn't good for me at the time that, you know, I was feeling um, underappreciated or, or ignored because, you know, our, when kids are small, they're demanding and, and they're very high maintenance. And uh, so I, I, there were times when I would, I would need, when I found myself saying, boy, it's been a while since we've connected physically. Um, I check it in with my sponsor and just say, Hey, you know, I'm feeling like it's, it's becoming more of a, of a have to than a, than a, uh, than a want to. And, uh, um, and we talk about it and, and laugh. Um, you know, my sponsor has four sons and, and, uh, so, you know, he could identify with what I was going through with too. And I, you know, I think we always know. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, there were times when it was offered where I, where I had to say no. Um, you know, it's, this is, I'm not in a good place right now. And so, um, and I trusted my gut on that. You know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, I, I could find myself starting to rationalize and say, no, you know, I'm just not in a good place right now. And thank you. And, and, and then it, almost the immediate thought was, oh my gosh, it's going to be forever before it's offered again. And uh, so we, you know, it, it was, it's just something that we, you know, we kind of work through over time. So hopefully that helps. Thank you. Greg, please go ahead. Don't forget to uh, yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, is it uh, for asking questions or sharing? I'm not sure exactly. You can ask a question or share. You have one minute and a half. Yeah, thanks. Uh, i just like to share that. Uh, thank you very much. It was really, really interesting and uh, a ver- very good insight in the uh, in, in the uh, starting of... Uh, essay at uh, um, or, or um, the early times and um, I feel a bit similarly here in uh, Hungary that we are just starting out and uh, although I, I, I've been uh, for years in another uh, S community I feel that uh, essay gives me a lot of uh new uh things and ways to think about um um, think about sobriety and uh, recovery and and i'm very glad to be here and uh also uh i i could really see uh god's work in your life uh uh throughout your uh story or your um sharing and I'm, I'm very grateful for that and and I was also very uh, very I, I couldn't imagine I, I could reach five months either but I already did but uh, I'm, I'm really amazed how my sobriety members here here have thank you for letting me share thanks Greg Thank you, Greg. Daniel G. J. 
<laughs> oh, uh, thanks for your service, Luke and Dave. That was a wonderful story. And I identified with so much. The magazines at age eight, the fork in the woods. Um, at the university, they put on an X-rated movie to raise some funds. That was back in the 70s there in, in Colorado. Um, trying not to look at women. Um, the squiggly lines on the cable. Oh, my God. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the crazy stuff. I do have a question. Um, Let's see if I got this right. You said five years into recovery, you met your second wife. And then at 11 years, you got married. Does that mean you were single for 11 years in the program? And if so, how did you handle all those many years as a single person? Yeah, it, it, that that was almost correct. I, I started dating five years in about four and a half years into recovery. Um, I didn't meet her until... Um, uh, about four or five years later. So I dated, I dated for um, about six years, um, a number of different women during that time. And uh, uh, yeah, met, didn't meet my spouse until night. I started in 1990 and met my spouse in 1994 at the end of 94. And we married in the summer of 86. So yeah, I was single and sober um, and I was one of those guys that sat on the sidelines and said, these married guys have got it made in the shade, you know, um, it's their, their recovery's got it is much easier than mine. And, um, and then, um, you know, based on that last question, um, when I'm, I'm married and I'm supposed to be sexual and, you know, it's not working out for whatever reason, you know, children or whatever. Um, I really had that awareness that, you know, maybe it it actually was easier, you know, when it when it wasn't an option. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I learned that um, one day at a time thing very early that, uh, you know, at the, at the time, you know, I would. I would belong to a denomination that did not believe in, in divorce and remarriage. And so I was 33 years old when I came in and, and, uh, and if I didn't reconnect with my ex-wife, then, you know, I might not have sex again for the rest of my life. And so that when I first heard one day at a time, that's where I applied it. And, um, you know, I know I need to be sober. Um, and, you know, my my thoughts, are we going to be able to get back together? Uh, you know, am I ever going to have sex again? And I, I could just say, today, I'm not in a relationship. Today, I'm not going to have sex. And it's going to be okay. And um, I'm going to do everything I can today to stay sober. And, um, you know, pick up the phone, go to a meeting. Uh, do whatever I need to do. But today, um, you know, my sponsor likes to say, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to act out today, even if my ass falls off. Um, uh, I, I never, never felt that way, but I knew that, you know, I could do just about anything for one day. And if I, if I strung them together, then it would work out. But that's, you know, that's kind of how it worked out for me. Thanks, Dave. Lee, please go ahead. 
Hey, Dave. Uh, hey, Lee. Sure was, sure was great to hear you. Uh, I remember we met maybe 34 years ago, uh, and uh, I, I remember those times clearly, um, but I never heard your whole story, and I'm really grateful to hear that. There are many parallels, and uh, uh, many parallels, and so I, I appreciate that. Um, I, will, I, too, was at that St. Louis conference but I was probably hidden in some corner and we didn't <laughs> meet. Uh, but <laughs> it was something I remember. Uh, and uh, Judson, uh, I still talk to virtually every day. Uh, and uh, uh, so I've, I've kept up a little with you secondhand. Uh, so, uh, Johnson's a remarkable guy and has had a miracle similar to yours. And uh, I, uh, I, I just wanted to say uh, I was glad to hear you. Uh, it's great to have those parallels. And it's grateful to see you here, even though you're in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm in East Tennessee right now. So uh, good, to, good to hear you. Dave. That's all I'm saying. Thanks, Lee. Uh, you know, great to see you. Great to hear you. Uh, just tell everybody, uh, Judson was the first person who called me at work for a support call. And we were in an open office environment. And this guy calls me and he wanted, he wanted to cast something out. I'm saying, holy crap, how do I do this at work? And, and I said, let me let me go to a conference room and I'll call you right back. And I, I went to a conference room where we could talk confidentially. And we started in 1988 um, a phone routine where we we learned to talk in code. And so that we could have a conversation in an open office place and 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 tell each other what was going on without anybody really realizing who we were talking to or what we were talking about. And uh, bless his heart. Um, and I still talk to him multiple times. He lives in Seattle, Washington. I live in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, we talk to each other. And I'll just ask you to pray for my friend Judson. He's, uh, he was diagnosed back in, uh, in March with ALS. And uh, um, so, but he's dealing with that like we deal with our addiction and he deals with his one day at a time and uh, God bless him. You know, he, he's one of those miracles in my life. Mm -hmm. Me too. I'm inspired every time I talk to him. Amen. And ALS is also called Lou Gehrig's disease in, uh, in America. So uh, for those who don't know what it is, that's all. Thanks, Lee. Thank you, guys. Don't forget to raise your virtual, ha virtual hand. I'm going to jump in myself. Um, hi, Dave. My name is Luke. And my question is, first of all, thank you so much for your story. My question is, I, you came in indirectly through the television, through that anonymous testimony on a television. It, it was your first your first uh, eye-opener or something like that about oh, sex addiction. 
it happened the same happened to me uh, because of a news newspaper article anonymous testimony in a newspaper article now what's your standpoint on working with the press i know in the white book it is said on the national level which is U, uh, usa that we are that it's not recommended yeah but, i mean several of us you and i and several others of us we came in through a fellow working with the press so what's what's your maybe experience strength and open it or your viewpoint um yeah thanks luke uh that's a yeah that's a great question um obviously um you know our our tradition says that you know we don't identify ourselves publicly with with sa and uh um you know over the years you know i've been contacted to appear on a talk show um uh i've been contacted to uh speak for sa in a newspaper um and i know others who have also been approached the same way and uh in each case i even had this fantasy uh back when we had a president that was having some issues uh of being flown to the white house because i had a i had a connection um this person was seeing somebody and i knew that person that they were seeing and i i thought i might be called into service and i was ready to jump on a plane and fly to washington um but you know i i i think our tradition works um you know i think uh you know we might hear from our friend paul here uh, how he heard about sec- um certainly now um i i think there's enough discussion around um addiction and sexual addiction that uh people can get on pretty quickly and find out what's out there and uh and i think that's worked i think you know as much as um i don't go around publicly telling people that i'm a sexaholic um it's it it doesn't appear to me that sexaholism is nearly as as socially acceptable as alcoholism where people are very free to talk about that um you know i i think i think it the tradition works for us and uh um and it prevents us you know as as much as um i enjoy, i'm i'm like the next person who enjoys getting a positive attention uh i think it prevents people who uh say they have recovery and really don't and and go out and speak for us and uh i think it's it's a really healthy boundary to have thank you dave suzanne please come in yes hi um thank you um and uh, thank you so much dave um it was really good to hear your story and um and i got a little more clarity on um you know the situation in rochester when you came in i think i'd heard that there were only three of you but it sounds like there was a few more so that's exciting um and uh and and you may have seen in the chat that dave g is still uh live and well and involved in our fellowship and uh um so uh it's it's really i mean for me it's interesting because i've never been married and um you know i've now been in sa and been sober since 2004 and i mean to me that's amazing grace 
you know, right off the bat, just because I never, I tried so many ways to get sober before because, you know, my behavior was totally against my faith tradition, my values, my, you know, I, I was upset about it, you know, I mean, it just, it just was driving me crazy, literally. And, um, I, um, I, I really, I really struggled, um, to get sober, but, but now I look back and I say, well, first of all, I love in the, in the uh, solution where it says the sex was indeed optional. And I did realize that even though it was one day at a time, I did have to face the possibility that I may never have sex again. And of course, that's still true because I haven't. On the other hand, I do find it simpler. I mean, you know, I don't know. Everybody has their own situation, whether you're married or single. But I'm kind of grateful that sex is just off the table. I don't have to worry about is this lustful sex or okay sex with my spouse? And, you know, am I really in a giving place or am I really wanting to take? And I, I see giving as love and taking as lust. So, um, so I'm just, I'm grateful. I mean, I'd be fine if I got married, uh, you know, um, but I, I love the fact that sex is indeed optional and that I don't have to have, um, you know, marriage and, and, uh, uh, you know, sexual relationship with my spouse in order to be, to be in this program and to be happy, joyous and free. And I'm just so grateful for that today. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, Nancy, please go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Luke. And, um, Daniel, and thank you, Dave. Good to hear your story. I have a question. When you mentioned um, your forms of acting out at the beginning, you said that dependency relationships is a real issue for you. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit more. Thanks. Sure. Sure. You know, for me, it was the, um, it was a belief that I had to have a relationship to be complete. And, uh, and I remember, um, uh, after a couple of years of sobriety, um, uh, I got into some counseling um, because I was, before I was an addict, I was a co-addict. Um, and that's, that was my belief that, uh, you know, my parents' behavior was addictive and, and so I qualified. And, and, you know, I had this awareness that up until that time, all my relationships had been the same. Um, I always depended on them. Um, that's a burden that no person can handle. And after a while it pisses them off and, and they leave you. And, uh, and, and then the pattern for me was, uh, they would leave and then they would come back and I would accept them with open arms and then they would leave me again. And, uh, and, you know, I was two years sober when I had this awareness, you know, what is it about me? that causes me to be in these, you know, identical relationships. And, you know, that was the breakthrough for me that, uh, you know, I was depending on these people to make me happy and to complete me. And, uh, and one of the, uh, you know, one of my therapists early on said, you know, a half a person plus a half of person does not make a whole person. It's actually, it has the effect of multiplication. So, uh, a half times a half makes a quarter. You end up being less. And, uh, and that really clicked with me. And so I realized that, uh, 
uh, like Suzanne just said, uh, I was nine years sober. And uh, I thought that I might be able, you know, my ex-wife was still single. And uh, there was a, there was a uh, conference in Rochester, New York in January. Why anybody wants to go to Rochester, New York in January, I don't know. But nevertheless, uh, I had been sober for nine years. Uh, she was still single. Uh, I called her and told her I was coming to town. Uh, we had dinner that night. And uh, um, I, I had some hope that, you know, maybe after all this time, maybe something could happen. And, uh, and it was, um, we made arrangements to see each other the next, the next day. And uh, as, as it was her pattern, she canceled, you know, the next morning. And uh, I came home and, and it really, I felt a lot of sadness and, and, uh, and, but it, it really occurred to me. Um, and it was, you know, the best awareness that I've, that one of the best I've ever had in recovery. And it was that I was nine years sober. Um, I enjoyed my job. I, I had made wonderful relationships in this fellowship, men and women, and I could live this way the rest of my life. And, um, I'm not sure if I had a date between then and that, that was in February or January and February of 1994. And it was in December that I met my wife and, uh, but I was at peace about that. And, uh, so, you know, I didn't need another person that I, you know, I certainly love being in a community and, and certainly a loving community like SA and, um, and I could be happy. And, uh, I, you know, I met my spouse that December, so that's how it worked out. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.